0: Even on the best of days, stress can prevent us from being fully focused and doing our best work. And too much of it can lead to burnout, disengagement, more sick days, and strained relationships in the workplace. Headspace for Work is the enterprise-ready mindfulness program that leads to healthier organizations from the inside out. The proof is in the science. After a month of using Headspace, you and your teams can reduce stress by 32% and enjoy 14% greater focus. With Headspace for Work, you can build a custom program that fits your organization's needs and measures the impact you're making. Learn more about Headspace for Work today at headspace.com forward slash work. Hey, everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Madison Butler. She's a human resources professional, a recruiter, a talent acquisition leader, and someone who's passionate about startups. But she's on my podcast today because wherever she goes, real life, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Madison is who she is unapologetically. Madison is on the show today because of her self-confidence. No matter where she is in real life or on social media, She speaks her mind even in the face of death threats. That's right. She gets death threats from HR people. Let me say that again. Madison Butler gets death threats from people in human resources on LinkedIn. It is the most insane thing I have ever said on this show. But even in the face of all of that relentless negativity, Madison still believes in people. She still believes that human resources has a role for making the world a better place. And that's why I love her. And that's why I admire her. And I know you will too. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with my dear friend, Madison Butler.
1: Hey, Madison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that we finally got
0: to connect. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, it's my dream because whenever I put something out on the internet, I'm like, what is Madison going to think of this? Is this real or is this bullshit? So you're one of my voices in my head. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Before we get started and I fangirl out about you, why don't you tell everybody your origin story? Like who are you and what are you all about?
1: So my name is Madison. A lot of people online would know me as the blue haired recruiter. Recently converted to the blue haired unicorn since I'm now a recovering recruiter. I'm super passionate about DEI and anti-racism work, as well as really breaking down the status quo that is corporate America. I really believe that I was like put here to change the makeup of how the corporate world views humans.
0: Hmm. I love that for a whole bunch of reasons, tons of stuff in there. I mean, I want to get started with something that I'm a little selfishly passionate about, which is I think corporations need to be smashed to the ground and fundamentally rebuilt. And I know you have a POV on that, like you're here to fix how corporations view people. Is that even possible?
1: I think so. And it's one of the reasons people always ask me like why have I never kind of gravitated to big tech like all of the Fang companies. And I think fundamentally they're probably too far along in the process to change. So I spend a good deal of my time focusing on startups because startups are going to be the next Fangs of the world in 10 or 20 years. And I think there is still a lot of hope for them.
0: Well, I like your optimism there. So you talked about the work that you do within startups. Can you describe some of that? Like what is it that you're doing to change the world?
1: For sure. So when I think about DI and culture specifically, I think a lot of us don't think about it at the beginning stages of our organizations. We are so focused on staying afloat and not drowning <laughs> and making money that you don't necessarily spend a lot of time focusing on the humans that you have employed. But at the end of the day, like the humans that you have are going to be the most important piece of your business. And so when you start focusing on those things, when you hit three people, rather than hitting your series B or your series C, and you turn around and you're like, oh my gosh, we have 200 people. And they all look the same. They're all the same person. We've just hired 200 chads in Patagonia vests, And now what do we do? So I spend a lot of time with early stage companies focusing on how you build inclusive cultures from day one and knowing that a lot of that is about making space. It's not about pre-creating space. It's not about predetermining space or culture fit. It's about knowing that if you want humans to come in and do work, you have to accept that human as whoever they are, meaning you have to allow them to come in and take up space, whatever that space may be. And we can't determine that beforehand.
0: You know, a lot of this work requires some patience, some forethought, some ability to get it wrong, right? And some tolerance for that. But I think about a startup and everything is so high pressure, (laughs) you know, everything is life or death. The consequences could not be higher, even for the smallest decisions, at least in a founder's head. So how much harder is it to do this work at a startup? Because it's incredibly hard to do it with a mature company. This is the point in which you're intersecting it, hoping to make change. What's that like?
1: So I think it depends on the organization. And so I think part of it is working with organizations who have been ethical around who is on their board, who is funding them. Because, you know, in the early stages of all of these companies, that's who has a lot of say. And so you have to have founders, you have to have board members, and you have to have VCs that also believe in this work. And there are a lot of them out there. And then there are a lot that do it for show. And I think that's really the biggest thing is determining who wants to talk about the work and who wants to do the work.
0: Well, it's interesting that you use the phrase the work because that is something that people reference all the time. And I think, you know, the average HR professional in Paducah, Kentucky or Indianapolis, Indiana, isn't even quite sure what the work is. And I don't know if you have a moment to talk about that, but how do you define the work?
1: So I think a lot of the work is being able as individuals ourselves to be self-aware enough to figure out where we are actually off track. In order to plan for DEI and have strategy, it has to start with the people who are already employed. So as a founder, as a VP of people, as whoever, you have to figure out what your own biases are. And that takes a crap ton of self-awareness. And usually it's very uncomfortable. It is a lot of uncomfortable conversations with others and with yourself. And that in itself is work. Being uncomfortable is And a lot of companies don't necessarily want to get to that point. We want to have conversations that make us feel good. We want to have the diversity conversations that are very warm and fuzzy and feel like a big hug. But that is not the work. That is just talking about the work and maybe what you want to happen. But the actual work is peeling back these layers and having these uncomfortable conversations to really talk about what is inherently going wrong in your organization and what you need to do to change those things.
0: Well, I keep talking to HR professionals, executives who say things to me like, well, I'm in charge now of our company's DNI initiatives, especially after George Floyd. And we're having a lot of great conversations. And I just want to say, hold the phone. Why are you in charge of this conversation? And what's different about you today that wasn't in place, you know, in April of 2020? So when you see a lot of these conversations happening among your peers and companies that you read about, what's your reaction to this? I mean, it's got to be beyond natural skepticism.
1: Super, super, super skeptical. And part of it is I'm a Black woman. I'm also a queer woman. So how often do we see these conversations come about? Every June, we're all pumped for rainbows. But like, what are we actually doing (laughs) to make the world better for people who identify as LGBTQ? Usually not a whole lot. We just like slap a rainbow on our website. Same thing when it comes to BLM and the George Floyd catalyst. And it's like so many companies were dying to put up their black square or dying to tout their donation money. But what I really want to know is like, what are you doing for your black employees? Because if you want to reach out into the world and say black lives matter, but you're actually not making the black lives in your building feel like they matter, then what are you really doing? You're using black trauma for PR. And I have a big old problem with that.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, intellectually, I have a big old problem with that, but I can only do so much as like a white woman, right? You know, calling that out. I, <laughs> I'm certainly not the voice of any sort of movement. I'm just opinionated. But what could someone do if they're just offended by some of this performative behavior by corporate America? What are you doing? What do you say to someone like me who just wants to throw up every time I see yet another statement of allyship that's not backed up with money or intention?
1: I think everything comes full circle. I talk about it a lot. Allyship is not fuzzy words and it's not a name that you give yourself. You can't just decide one day that you're an ally because being an ally is not an adjective, it's a verb. So I think the world will come full circle and we will get to see who meant it and who didn't. I think the nice thing about COVID and the world right now is employees and candidates are becoming very self-aware of who they work for. And not only are they becoming self-aware of who they work for, they're talking about who they work for. And so as the internet is a thing now, (laughs) it's hard. To keep those secrets when you're doing allyship for clout, it's really like I said in my post last week it's like spicy privilege. When you are an ally for your resume or for your LinkedIn or for whatever, you're just an ally to look good. It's one of those things you get to choose as being someone who's not black or a person of color. You get to choose if you're in the fight or not. And if you choose not to be in the fight, that's one thing, but to choose to say you're in the fight and then not be in the fight, (laughs) it's a really hard thing to handle. And as a woman of color, as a black woman, it's really really frustrating for me. But I do think we'll see the world come full circle. And I do think there are organizations that are doing the right thing. Like, I know that I'm very skeptical, but there are companies out there that are doing this the right way, even if they're overshadowed by the companies who aren't.
0: We've almost made it through 2020, but it's never been more critical for businesses and HR leaders to address the mental well-being of their teams head on. Headspace for Work is the scientifically proven enterprise ready mindfulness program that leads to healthier organizations from the inside out. Help your team stress less, avoid burnout, and focus better throughout the day after using the custom program you develop with Headspace to fit your organization's needs. Learn about Headspace for Work today at headspace.com forward slash work. Hey, everybody. Chances are you've spent the past few months cooped up with your family, buried under a relentless news cycle, and with work that never seems to switch off. Millions of us worldwide are overworked, exhausted, and trying our hardest, yet not getting the recognition we deserve. It's time for a fix. That's why I wrote my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. It's an essential guide for how to snap out of autopilot and become your own best advocate with candid and new stories and easy to adopt steps. I wrote this book for you. I believe in you. And I would be honored if you would pre-order it today. Head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudeman.com forward slash books and pre-order your copy today. You know, I'm often skeptical to call things out and to inject myself into a storyline because it's not about me. But I have to tell you, Madison, when I see you on LinkedIn and I see the really big and bold and awesome ideas that you have, and I see people attack those ideas, I want to go after those individuals with a knife and stab them in the throat. Right? You know? And I'm trying my hardest, and I work on the internet isn't real work. I've come to believe that in my own life. So what am I going to do? Get a piss and match with someone who's got a nasty negative comment? against you. But I wonder, what's your experience like online in the thick of this? Like, what are you experiencing? What are you feeling? What are you seeing? What's going on with you and some of the posts that you put out there?
1: I get a lot of death threats. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's been really interesting for me is to see the reaction of just really speaking about my lived experience. And I think that's one of the things people ask me is like, as an ally, what's the thing you need the most for me? And I really think the thing I need the most is for people to believe Black people when they talk about their lived experience. Too often, we're required to bring like all of the receipts just to prove that we had an interaction. And so I think that's like the thing that's been the most shocking to me is how many people like when I talk about my lived experience, don't believe me. Like they think I like sit around and make things up (laughs) for likes. And I just, one, I don't have the time or the patience. But if you turn on the news, it should kind of give you an idea that a lot of these stories are real and they're believable. As a Black woman, I have to think about like when I drove across the country, like driving home, where can I stop? realistically. Where can I drive through at night and feel okay? And people like really think that I'm making that up. And that's just that kind of just blows my mind.
0: Yeah. What really galls me and makes me so upset for you is that you're not only getting trolled by people on the internet who are just terrible human beings. These people work in human resources. Like that's the thing that just gets me every goddamn time. Like you are being harassed by people who set the tone for organizations. And I want to put that out there because it was written about in the New York Times and you had some really wise things to say about it. What's this interaction like knowing that there are fellow recruiters and HR professionals being the worst human beings possible? I know that doesn't surprise you, but can we just talk about that for a second?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, so while we're talking about, have you heard of Unwoke HR?
0: Unwoke HR? No, tell me about Unwoke HR.
1: It's basically a job board for white supremacists. So like there are people who are really on the other side of this on purpose. It's not yes. they're they're ignorant, they're not like lacking the knowledge, they know what they're doing and they're intentional. And I think that's part of it. Like you have to acknowledge that if there is a good side of history, there's also a wrong side of history. And so I really encourage candidates when they are interviewing to be very upfront and very transparent about who they are, what they expect and what their boundaries are, because you are much better off finding out the truth about a company before you commit to them.
0: Do you have specific questions or pieces of advice that you offer candidates? Like, how do they know? Because I'll tell you, companies have gotten pretty good at lying. They've been doing it for the whole history of humankind. So how do you really know what a company is all about?
1: For sure. So I know for me, like as a woman who is queer with blue hair and a lot of tattoos, these are things I talk about pretty openly. And obviously the world is virtual now. So you may not get to meet me in person. But I ask a lot of questions about like, okay, so what did you do for your employees to support them during COVID? What did you do to support your Black employees during Black Lives Matter? What did you do to support your employees during this really wild election that was full of tons of turmoil and stress? And there are just some things that you can't really readily lie about and be good at it. And the other thing that I'm always going to ask is I want to talk to someone who's going to be on this team with me. I don't want to just talk to people I'm going to report to because we all know that managers manage up very well, which means they also interview very well. You may interview with someone who you think is a rock star. They're going to be the best manager you've ever had. And your first day on the floor, you're like, oh my God, I made a mistake. (laughs) I've been that person. I had a woman who I interviewed with and I loved her. And then on my first day of work, she was like, I don't believe in science. And I was like, great. So excited
0: to be here. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, Madison, I love that point about asking to talk to someone who will be on your team. You know, the best manager I ever had was at Pfizer, where I ended my HR career. I only had her for a few months. But when I interviewed with her, she actually proactively offered references on herself. And not just like from the immediate past, but, you know, as she grew as a manager, she's like, talk to these individuals who saw me at my roughest, at my weakest points. And I took her up on that. And I think, you know, why don't we teach some of this? We teach certainly all these negative behaviors, right? We teach behavior-based interviewing. There are all kinds of things that we pass on in the interview process. Why aren't we teaching better ways to interact when looking for a job and when hiring people?
1: I think for too long, we've been really focused on this idea that as candidates, as humans, we should feel honored to work for people. I really operate in the opposite way. I feel as organizations, as leaders, we should feel honored that someone wants to come work for someone else's dream every day. And so I don't think we've ever had enough focus on the candidate. And the candidate experience, I know when I interview people, my only goal, whether you get a job offer with me or not, is always going to be that you left this process feeling like you've gained something. Otherwise, I've wasted your time. (laughs) And I want you to feel like you're better off for your next interview, for your next conversation, for your next role, whatever that means. And so that means when I'm having conversations with candidates, I'm incredibly transparent around... How to talk about boundaries, how to talk about values, what my values are as an organization, what boundaries we're expecting. And so I think as organizations and leaders, we owe that to people. We should be very upfront and clear about what we expect and who we are. These aren't things people should be learning about in onboarding or on month six when they're like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to my child's t-ball game. And we're like, oh, no, 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 that's not okay. Why were these not things that we talked about before they made a commitment to coming here?
0: Well, I think too, what's weird about the interview process is that it's both such a compressed and elongated period of time. It like exists in a time and space continuum that makes absolutely no sense, right? It begins when it begins, it ends when it ends. You only hear from the hiring manager on their terms. And I just think so much of that is broken. And it's like, and you want the hiring manager to talk about goals and values and ambitions and dreams. It's just, the process is totally jacked. I wouldn't even know how to go about fixing it except to tear it all down and maybe rebuild it because it seems like the foundation of interviewing is just so goddamn broken. I don't know if it's because of the power differential. I don't know. What's your take on that? I do think the hiring process is super broken. So with me,
1: I actually make sure that those conversations that you and I just talked about, those are things I'm having before I even let them hit a hiring manager. One, because I don't want to waste your time and you fall in love with this manager that you may report to this role. And then you find out like values are completely misaligned. You're misaligned from the organization. And so I spend a lot of time talking about just you as a human. I basically will have my hiring manager give me two things that need to be a yes. Like give me two things I need to check in order to move forward, like from a role perspective, but I'm going to spend the rest of my time focusing on them, the human. And I'm going to ask questions like, how do you learn best? because that is helpful for us in the interview process when we're thinking about behavioral questions and the things we want to ask. How do we give this candidate the experience that makes the most sense for them? And so I try to spend a lot of time really focused on individuals from a human perspective versus a, are you this job description that I posted.
0: Yeah. You know, that's antithetical though to today's modern recruiting practices because the people who are actually doing the recruiting are not experts in human psychology. They may be experts in business or in certain aspects of organizational design and development. They may be really good at doing job matching and skills matching, but... If you give me 100 recruiters that I know on LinkedIn, like three of them fit the category of actually having a conversation that connects human to human, heart to heart. So you've got just a ton of people doing the work who maybe shouldn't be doing the work.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of people who are doing the work authentically end up in roles where they can't make change. So we see all of these CEI roles opening up. And they end up being so siloed because they're there to impress the board. They're there to impress the VCs. They're there to put on your Instagram like, oh, look at this brown stock photo. You hired a Black person into a diversity role. But then you don't allow them to create change. You don't give them the power to have actionable change throughout your organization. And so the people who really do want to do the work, who have the capability of doing the work, can't do it. And so then it's just HR who actually doesn't really care. They just know they have to do it because like they got to put some metrics together doing it and they don't actually care. And so the roles are now swapped. The people who can be doing the work aren't given the ability to. People who are able to do the work don't actually care about the work. So they just kind of fake it
0: you know, you just talked about metrics and what popped in my head is maybe that's part of the core problem here. I mean, we are so measurement focused and and whether it's on the right thing or the wrong thing. I just think that impulse that if you can't measure it, it's not worthwhile. Or if you can't measure it, it's not real. is kind of a stupid and counterintuitive and counterproductive impulse to have at the job because some of the most important things in the world, you know, connection, familiarity, reciprocity, community. I'm not sure you can measure community, can you? But Yet community is everything when you're working in a company, especially remotely. I don't know. What do you think about metrics here?
1: I'm actually... I I get a lot of flack for it, but I'm not a metrics person because I, again, I'm very human-centered and humans are not metrics. And so my biggest thing is I'm hiring people to be able to give them the ability to feel psychologically safe. And that is not something I can measure. In the same instance, when you think about your pipeline for recruiting, I don't want Recruiters who are like, well, I got 10 black people to interview. We're good now. That's not the same thing. Like, there is an ethical way to creating a diverse organization and a diverse pipeline. And I don't think any of those involve like counting how many black people you talk to.
0: You know, though I have to say, most companies are like, this is all great. I love it. It's aspirational. Where's my playbook? How do I do this? Right. Because so many organizations go to these models that were created at Stanford or, you know, out in Ithaca and they really try to replicate a way of building a company that's scalable and blah, blah, blah. Where's the library on this? Or Madison, I guess, where's your book on this?
1: There is no book. Maybe I should write one. I don't know. I don't know if anyone would want to hear my opinion. But I think metrics make people feel safe because it makes the journey measurable. When in actuality, this journey doesn't end. It's not something that's measurable. There's no destination. If you commit to being a company that is committed to anti-racism and diversity inclusion, that never ends. It's not measurable because it is just a continuing cycle of work. And so I think metrics make us feel cozy because you can hit goals when you shouldn't be looking at humans to hit goals unless you're in sales and that's a different world, but you're not like selling humans. Mm, (laughs) So I think people rely on metrics because it makes them feel like they're doing their job correctly. And they may be doing their job completely wrong because they're doing it from a non-ethical standpoint. And so I think we rely on metrics because it makes us feel safe.
0: Well, I do like the idea of you writing your book. (laughs) So I want to like put that (laughs) out there and encourage that. And I think mostly because there's a reason why most of us do the work that we do. There's a why behind it. You know, I've got my why, even though it may be messed up and related to my family of origin, right? I wonder what's your why? Why are you doing the work you're doing?
1: I do the work I'm doing because I know some of the struggles I've faced in corporate America as a Black and queer woman. But on the flip side, I know how good I am at what I do. And I want little Black girls 10 years, 20 years from now to not have to think about the correlation between the two. I don't want them to have to work 10 times harder to prove how good they are at what they do. I want people to just be able to show up whoever they are and work and be successful. I think we have gotten really caught up in that there's this equation to success like A plus B equals C. And that's not it. You can be whoever you want to be outside of being like a racist and a homophobe and a transphobe and be successful. (laughs) There's no right way to do it. It doesn't mean you've got to wear a skirt or you've got to have straight hair or you've got to smile more and giggle at everyone's jokes. Like there's just no proper way, like however you get to success is how you got there. And I think that's okay. And I really want people to embrace that. I don't want people to look at me and be like, oh, you have blue hair. You must not have a job, which is an odd correlation for people in me. I want people to be like, oh, she's got blue hair. And no assumption after it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, she just likes
0: blue. <laughs> well, I love that. And it makes me think a little bit about how, you know, the good ones do this. They build a brand. They build a reputation. They build an identity without saying, I'm going to build my brand on LinkedIn. And I'm going to, you know, try to make a name for myself as the blue haired unicorn. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing online? How you share your ideas, even though you're getting death threats from time to time? And what that is all about, what it actually means to you.
1: For sure. So I actually... To back up, I never meant to start a personal brand. I interviewed with a company years ago now, and they were like, Oh, we love you. And then there was a big fat butt after it. And it was like, But we need you to change your hair. We need you to cover your tattoos. We need you to wear a skirt. And I was like, Okay. That's the first time I had this like moment where I was like, Oh my God, they love what I can do for them, but they don't love me. And so I was like, Okay, if I put I have blue hair on my LinkedIn, people will know that it's probably a non negotiable. <laughs> so that's where I came up with the Blue Haired Recruiter and I put it on my LinkedIn so that when companies reached out to me, they already knew. They didn't think it was like some weird filter. And I kind of started posting actually around that time around what it was like to be, you know, black and tattooed in and, and the corporate space and what it felt like navigating in technology. And I was oh, really wait, wait, like... can I interrupt
0: you? Because why, why did you yeah. feel compelled to do that? I mean, why would you start writing about that? Because most of us, I mean, I had a similar experience going into corporate America. They're like, you're great, but we're going to need you to take those piercings out of your face, grow out your hair and cover your arms. I mean, they were really clear. And I said, yes, ma'am, because I needed to pay <laughs> my student loans, right? So you had a different experience, though. You Actually, went out and started writing about it. Why did you do that?
1: I was at an organization that loved me. And I was just at the time, I was like, I need to make more money. But I was like, they love me and I'm so good at what I do. And like, how I look has no bearing on how good I am at what I do. And like, I'm not better at work because I wear a skirt. Like, I might just be cold, but that's about it. (laughs) So for me, I was like, I can't be the only one that's experiencing this. And I think it was because I had this like, moment where I was like, Oh my God, they only like me for what I can do, but not for like me as a person that I was like, I want to talk about this. And at the time my organization was like, Hey, can you like write us an article? And I was like, sure, I got you. I'm going to write about this thing. And I got tons of weird feedback. So this is like my first time ever writing really on LinkedIn. I had someone who's like, you're never going to be able to get an MRI with all those tattoos. And I was like, that's not a thing, oh but okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, I actually just had an MRI. And so I kind of slowly started writing here and there, not about anything like wild all the time. I really started with talking about where recruiting was broken. I moved to another organization. I had a conversation with our VP of sales and he was like, you should just be authentic. He was like, talk about the things that you go through on a daily basis. And he's like, if people hate it, people hate it. But if people like it, they like it. And the more I started writing, the more I started getting messages from people who were like, oh my gosh, you're saying all of the things that I've never been brave enough to say. And so with all of the hate mail, helping other people find their voice and find their true selves and like giving them the ability to maybe feel like they don't have to code switch every day has made it very much worth it for me because I just want people to be happy at work. I think so much of our lives ends up being work that we deserve to be happy while we're there. We shouldn't have to pretend to be two people every day. And so it's made the death threats I wouldn't say worth it, but quieter because I know that the work I'm doing is meaningful and it's going to mean something in 20 years when people can show up just as who they are. Even if I've just made a very small dent, I know I made a dent.
0: Hmm, I love that. Well, Madison, it was really great to hear your story, your perspective on the world of work. And we'll certainly include some links in the show notes. Are there any closing thoughts that you have for the audience just about where we are today? I mean, we're post-election, but pre-inauguration. So that's kind of a (laughs) show right now. Yeah. So where's your head at? Like as we close the show, I'd love to hear it.
1: Oh, man, it is so OK to log off line and turn off the news and block that person from your hometown that only comments on things to argue with you. I'm really in the space of like self-care and mindfulness has been really top of mind for me in all aspects of my life, but especially with like this turmoil and shit show of an election that we have behind us and still kind of ahead of us. I think it's OK to just take care of yourself and whatever that means. I think you should do it.
0: I love it. I love it. Thanks again for being a guest today on the podcast.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me.
0: Help your team be kind to their minds. Choose Headspace for Work for a happier, healthier work culture. Visit headspace.com forward slash work to learn more. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Madison Butler. If you'd like more information, you want to connect with her, you want to just learn what Madison is all about, head on over to LaurieRudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-139. You know, I'm real grateful that you make time for this podcast on a weekly basis, so thank you. I hope you enjoy the show, and we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.